money has an agenda. And there's got to be that perfect fit between the goals for the money and the goals for your project. And if you don't have that fit, then don't try and force it. That's probably the number one mistake that people make. Best ever listeners, before we jump into today's episode, got two questions for you. And this is for my fix and flippers out there. One, are your financing costs eating away at your bottom line? And two, are you looking for a way to increase your overall profits by reducing your loan payments to the bank or private lender? Of course you are, right? You're always looking to maximize the potential of your deal. So here's a solution. We got a solution for you through the crowdfunding platform, Patch of Land. If you're a loyal best ever listener, you know Patch of Land. They've been on the show many times. They've sponsored the show many times. They're back for more because they love you. They want to help you out. They want to add value to your life. And here's how they're going to do it. They have a solution to your financing issue of financing costs eating away from the bottom line. And they want to help you reduce your loan payments to the bank. So here we go. Patch of Land offers a fix and flip loan program that only charges interest on the funds that have been dispersed as opposed to the traditional model of lenders charging interest on the whole loan amount at the beginning. You save a lot of money this way, and it can be misleading when you get your terms quoted to you by the lender at a particular rate if they charge all the interest up front versus upon distributions. Patch of Land's got a document that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper to educate yourself on questions you should ask the lender. Regardless if you go with Patch of Land, you've got to get this document to educate yourself on the questions to ask your lender to make sure you're getting the best financing terms. The document's at patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. That's patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Patch of Land, they can close in as little as seven days and they can help you through this program save thousands of dollars on your deals, make more money, and uh, have a better business and grow your fix and flip business. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff with us today. Victor Manash. How you doing, Victor? Great to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here and looking forward to having our conversation. Victor's the author of a book called Magnetic Capital, How to Raise All the Money You Need for Any Worthy Venture. Isn't that intriguing? We're going to talk about that. He has raised more than $300 million in his nine-year real estate career. He's based in Ottawa, Canada. And with that being said, Victor, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Absolutely. Let me correct a little bit of that intro. A lot of the money that I raised was actually in technology, which was in my prior career. And what I discovered when I transitioned into the world of real estate investing is that the process of raising money is essentially the same. doesn't matter whether it's for a technology venture, for a real estate project. The process is almost the same. Mm. And my path into real estate is maybe not the typical one. I started out as a microprocessor designer and designing processors that were used in telecom networks and things like that. So half the phone calls in North America for a decade were processed by a chip that I designed. Hmm. So not your typical career path into real estate development. No, not at all. Before we get into the raising money part, what real estate investing are you focused on right now? What type? Today, we've got about nine projects underway. These are a combination of both infill and greenfield development projects, mostly multi-unit residential. 
So we like to go into communities. Right now, we're very active in Philadelphia, where we've purchased a lot of land north of the downtown. And however much land we can assemble, if it's three properties, that'll be a nine unit. If it's five properties, we'll probably put 13. That's however much land we can assemble at any given point in time. And great valuations on the finished product. And we're also very active in Louisiana along the Gulf Coast where there is tens of billions of dollars of natural gas and petrochemical plants under construction. So we're in the shadow of many of these mega projects with massive population growth and they need everything. They need housing, they need workforce housing, they need storage, they need medical, they need everything. You're in Ottawa. You're investing in Philly and in Louisiana and you're not only investing, but you're doing ground-up development. How are you able to do that? It's like any business. you got to have the right people in the right chairs. We obviously have very good boots-on-the-ground people, folks who have great relationships in the local markets. As you can imagine, places like Louisiana, where there's a ton of history, who you know and who you can connect with and how quickly makes a difference. And so having those local relationships is of vital importance, as well as having the management skills locally. So I do a lot of the investment management, but I also leverage my engineering background and make sure that a lot of the on-the-ground work is being done correctly. There's maybe your average investor who doesn't know how to ask the deep questions might miss some details. So it's a combination, but it really relies heavily on the team on the ground. Okay. And I'd love to learn more about those two aspects of how to be successful in those areas. You said local relationships and local management skills. So basically, you got to know the right people in those markets, and they've got to be skilled and aligned with your interests. Specifically, let's talk about Philly. How did you come across those people? I came across two guys. Uh, it was actually an introduction from my business coach who said, there's two guys in Philly that I think you should talk to. Victor, you know how to raise money, and they're doing some good work. So I flew down to Philly and they were, at that time, 2010, rehabbing houses north of the downtown, and they were doing good work. Clearly, the thing that was holding them back is they needed more money. So I was impressed with them, and I said, you know, if you partnered, you'd obviously have to give up an equity position, but if I brought capital to the table, you'd more than make it up on volume. So that's what we did, and 72 properties later, we're still hard at it. The structure that you have with those two partners, what type of structure do you say, okay, you got to give up equity and this is how much you have to give up in exchange for scaling your business? We would typically put together special purpose entities for each project so that if there's a handful of investors or often just one or two investors on a given building, they are firewalled from the other projects. So We'll typically put together some kind of joint venture, special purpose entity. It might be a limited partnership. And then we put together the capital structure for that project. It will be comprised usually of some equity, usually some mezzanine debt, and then, of course, bank financing for the construction and for the permanent financing. Okay. And then like one either a typical example or a specific example, just what do they own? What do you own? What do the investors own? Is there a preferred return? Just those details. For example, we just completed a nine-unit building back in June. I'll give you the numbers. The total construction cost for those nine units, and that's land, hard construction, all the soft costs, all in that project was a million four sixty. It's appraised at one point nine six million, and we got it leased up in about eight weeks from start to finish. We had one 
investor who took an equity position. I think she had 9% ownership. My partner on the ground has 50%. He's also the principal signer on the bank debt. And then I have the balance. Now, what our deal was, basically half the money goes to him, half the money goes to the money side of the equation, which is me. And I allocate typically a quarter or half of the money side, meaning a quarter of the project, to the equity partners. If I can raise the money without giving up equity, then we split the difference. So that we only gave up 9% equity, and then the rest we managed to raise as secondary financing, just debt at a premium rate of interest. And in fact, the one equity partner who's in the project has actually agreed to be bought out. So we will actually, in the end, have no equity partners in the project. We'll simply have paid out some debt, and that's that. So it's a good position to be in. And then that 9% that she originally owned, where does that go? Does that go to you, or did you say you split it with your partner? You split that, right? Okay. So then your 41% will go up 4.5%, and their 50% will go up 4.5%. Okay, got it. With the buyout, is there a certain return that you have projected to her so that she's then comfortable with exiting? Yeah. So she gets, in addition to having her money in the project, while her money is tied up, we've been giving her a preferred return. I think it was 5% if I remember correctly. So she would get her preferred return plus her share of the property. In this case, it's going to be a buyout. So she'll get a healthy return on her money over the course of the project between the buyout and the 5% that she got in simple interest. And are you able to pay the buyout by putting new financing on it and doing a cash out in some way to then pay her a portion of whatever was the cash out? Yeah, it'll either end up being a refinance or potentially a sale. We haven't decided on this particular project, but it'll be one of those two. In either case, we'll be able to recover. Think about it. We built the project for a million four sixty. It's valued at one point nine six, almost two million. So there's almost half a million of equity that we've created out of thin air by building this project in the right area and buying it at a deep discount to the market. That's our formula, by the way. What I just described to you, that particular project is as close to textbook as you can get in terms of our repeatable formula for all of our new projects. Great stuff. Well, I'm glad that we're going through this case study then. The total construction cost you said was 1.46. How much did the investor bring in this example? In that instance, she brought 100000 and then we had two others. One brought seventy, and another one brought forty. but that was straight debt. So the total contribution was a little over 300 and then the bank made up the rest. Huh. So you didn't put in your own money in this one. And what's your fee structure? Is it just the equity, or do you have additional fees on top of that? I'll usually take a 1% management fee calculated on the hard construction. So there was just over a million dollars of hard construction. So I took roughly $10,000 in fees out of the project, largely just to pay for incidentals on this particular building. Mm -hmm. But then the big payday is the refinance or hold on to it long term or sell it. Correct. Got it. Okay. At least up in eight weeks... How long did it take from start to finish from investors have funded the 300000 to it being able to start the lease-up period? Well, this particular project was one thing that was atypical about it. This particular project started in 2014, 
And the city of Philadelphia was making a fairly large claim of eminent domain. They were going to be expropriating a total of 1,344 properties. So there was a period of uncertainty where we were not sure if we were going to be on that list or not. So we decided to wait until that claim of eminent domain went through, and it was clear that we were going to be able to retain the property. So once that was clear, then we started construction. She brought her money in initially at the land acquisition back in 2014, and then the rest of the money we brought in in August of last year, August of 2016. Mm. So the project from the commitment of the construction, which was last August to June, the whole project took about 10 months once we pressed go. So the 5% preferred return on her was paid out after the lease-up period. Is that correct? No, no, no. That was, no? That, no, that was paid out during the entire life of the project. Oh, so how does the project support the preferred return when it hasn't started? We put a budget line item in the project. It's an interest reserve for that purpose, just like you would have an interest reserve for your construction lender. It's a budget line item alongside drywall and paint. And have you done preferred returns on ground-up development deals where you don't have that line item, but instead it's accrued until the lease-up period and the property can support itself to pay it? We have done that, but it's less common. For whatever reason, investors often seem to take comfort of getting that check once a month, once a quarter. And even though it really doesn't make any difference, Mm -hmm. whether it would be accrued or paid out, but oftentimes they just like the comfort of seeing that money come in. So it's just as easy for us to put it in the budget. How'd you find your business coach? That seems like an important person to make the connection between you and the two Philly people who you're doing deals with. It's interesting. I've actually had several business coaches over the years and I've grown a few and today I actually have someone that really I focus on primarily just mindset. Because as you know, business is a mental game. I've got another mentor who I have a monthly mastermind with. He's a little bit of a famous guy, but he has 60 years of business experience. He was actually Mr. Trump's right-hand man. You might remember him on The Apprentice TV show. Who is it? Mr. George Ross. Hmm. I probably should know that name. I didn't watch that show, but regardless, I probably should know that name. George Ross. All right, I'll look that up. I'm sure the best ever listeners know who that is. He's extraordinary. I listen to him, ask him very specific questions about my business, and I just get amazing advice from him. So when you have someone who's got that depth of experience looking over your shoulder, it really makes a difference. He's saved me from countless mistakes that I might have otherwise made. Mm -hmm. When do you know it's time to switch business coaches? That's a very good question. I don't know that there's any set answer, except in my case, I felt that I was reaching a plateau and that I really wasn't making forward progress with that particular coach and needed to elevate my game. Louisiana, let's go south from Philly to Louisiana. How were you introduced to your on-the-ground people there? These are folks that I've known for five or six years, and we had actually started uh, tried to do a project in Lake Charles, Louisiana. This is the community on the I-10 corridor halfway between Houston and Baton Rouge. We'd known for quite some time that there would be strong demand for workforce housing. That particular project never came to fruition, but we kept in touch and we had a lot of very frequent dialogue over the years. So we came across another couple of opportunities and decided to engage on it. And they're very good people, folks that I get along with very well. 
And most importantly, we complement each other extremely well from a skill set standpoint. So it's been a very good relationship. We're executing well on the projects and I'm very, very happy to be investing in that community. And I think I missed it. Do you remember how you initially met them five or six years ago? I probably met them at a conference, actually. Okay. Do you remember which one? I don't. (laughs) Got it. Cool. All right. What specifically are you developing in Louisiana? So right now we've got a 199-unit workforce housing RV park, which you often find with the construction workers. These are skilled workers. They're welders, pipe fitters, because they're building very large natural gas plants. And they're there on contract for three months, six months, sometimes a year, and they get a per diem allowance. But rather than stay in a man camp or stay in a hotel, which is above their housing allowance, many times they'd rather just go buy an RV, put it on a payment plan. At the end of their contract, they have an RV that they own. So there's tremendous demand for RV parks in the area. So we managed to put a deal together where we got a 15-year ground lease, and so that's what we're currently building. That's one. The second one is a larger multifamily project on a 14-acre parcel. Is that affordable housing? No, it's going to be B plus with nice amenities. The interesting thing about that market is that you often have tenants with a household income of 90,000 or more, and that's not your typical tenant profile. The reason that they choose to be tenants is they're not there for the long term. They're going to be there for a three-year contract or something like that. They don't necessarily want to buy a house but they also want to live someplace nice. And when they leave, someone else will come in behind them. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a different market dynamic, but there's a tremendous amount of population growth. So we're very confident that when you have 25, 30,000 population growth, that a couple of hundred units will be easily absorbed. Mm-hmm. What type of internal rate of return does the larger B-plus apartment community have? It's going to be a range depending on the ultimate valuation that we get for it and what we'll be able to refinance it at, but somewhere between 16 to 23%, somewhere Mm -hmm. in that range. And is that project IRR or is that to investors? That's to investors, yeah. That's to investors, okay. And what would you say is the projected project IRR? You know what? I don't remember. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, no biggie. (laughs) What city are you developing in? So this is Lake Charles, Lake Charles, Louisiana. Lake Charles. The RV park, is that hard to get permitting for? It's very hard. In fact, this is a process that was started a couple of years ago by a gentleman who met with the landowner and convinced the landowner to get it rezoned and all of that. And then he didn't have necessarily the skills to raise the capital. So he ended up partnering with us. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of done for us. What we've noticed is that other RV parks that have tried to get zoning Recently, in fact, there was one earlier this week that was denied. So getting zoning for an RV park is difficult, very difficult. Good for you all. Congrats on that. Yeah, we feel like we're in a great position because every park within a 40-minute drive is at 100% capacity. Now let's go more high level, and I won't ask you Project IRRs anymore. (laughs) And by the way, on the Project IRR, what was that projecting? A five-year exit, a seven-year, 10-year? That was five-year. That's five-year. Okay, cool. How can we learn to raise money for any worthy venture? I guess the first thing is that a lot of people are very uncomfortable asking for money. And often they're looking for money in the wrong places. So you got to think of it almost like a pair of shoes. 
When you go to the shoe store and you see the most beautiful pair of shoes, even if they're deeply on sale, if they don't fit, you're not a buyer. It doesn't matter how lovely they are or how deeply discounted they are. They've got to fit. So it's like that with money as well. Money has an agenda. And there's got to be that perfect fit between the goals for the money and the goals for your project. And if you don't have that fit, then don't try and force it. That's probably the number one mistake that people make. Second is that they're often looking in the wrong place. What I talk about in my book, Magnetic Capital, and this is what I noticed, is there's a few fundamental principles that when you meet those principles, raising money is remarkably easy. And when one or more of those are missing, it's very, very hard to raise money. So if you just have that awareness of what are the things you need, and there's only five of them really, and you hit all five of those, it's actually quite straightforward. And what are those five? So number one, relationship. You knew I was going to ask you that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Number one is relationship. Most people are not going to part with hundreds of thousands or millions of their hard-earned savings with folks they don't have a relationship with. So it really starts at that level. Number two is trust. And this is not just my dealing with an honest person. It's a more complex psychological contract. Can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can I trust you to execute the plan? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way? Can I trust you with my money? Can I trust you to hire the right team? And on and on and on. If any of those elements are missing, it starts to chip away at the trust. But when that trust is present, decisions get made fairly quickly. And if you have a funding partner that's saying to you, well, I don't know, I got to do another three or four weeks of due diligence, there's a clue that maybe that trust isn't there yet. But when the trust is there, decisions get made fairly quickly. Number three is results. Show me your track record. Show me that you know how to make money and you know how to do it consistently. Now, your listeners might be saying, well, wait a minute. How am I going to raise money if I don't have a track record? How am I going to get a track record if I can't raise any money? I'm stuck. Well, remember, this is business. This is not like your grade three math test where if you look on your neighbor's paper, you're cheating. Business is a team sport. So if you're lacking that experience, go work for somebody who is doing the kind of work you want to do, could be for six months or a year, and gain that experience. And now you can legitimately claim that because you've earned it. You can borrow some of their credibility as well. Think about the folks that have worked for Ken McElroy and the MC companies. Ken is Robert Kiyosaki's real estate guy. I know so many people that have done that specifically to gain that either with Ken or with anybody, working with someone of a high caliber so that they can build that credibility. Number four, you've got to have a compelling opportunity. There's a lot of people going out there thinking it's all about the deal, the deal, the deal, the deal. And you know what? It's Deal is important and it's got to be compelling, but it's got to be compelling also in the eyes of the beholder. A number of times I hear someone say, I had a great deal, but I couldn't get it funded. Well, there's a clue in that. Maybe it wasn't that compelling to somebody. The number of people that I see out there trying to do projects for 10 or 15% margin, I think they're nuts. Because you can make one mistake and now you're up to your neck in water and two mistakes and you're underwater. I like projects that have fat margins. I like projects that have that financial resilience. So if you do have one or two mistakes or more, because guess what? It's the real world and mistakes happen. You can survive that. I won't even start a project unless I feel pretty confident I can achieve 25-30% net profit margin. Those are hard to do. They're hard to find. Sometimes we don't find them, we create them. That makes it a little bit easier. That's one of the reasons why we do ground-up construction, because today, if you look at 
multifamily, most multifamily projects, when they go on the market, have multiple offers. If there's 20 bids on a project, I don't want to be the winning guy, 19 guys behind me. I never want to do that. But if I can build for 25, 30% less than things are selling in the open market, I'm willing to wait a year to create that amount of value. Okay. And then lastly, you've got to have alignment. And this is a basket of things where the goals for the money and the goals for the project have to match. That is, what's the size of the investment? What's the term of the investment? Meaning how long is it going to be tied up for? What's the rate of return? What's the security? What's the risk? What is the control structure? What's the tax consequence? It's a bunch of smaller questions like that. And you have to get a pretty close to perfect match on those. And when you do, like I said, raising the money is relatively easy. But the thing to do is make sure you don't force it. For example, I have a guy who likes to cycle his money on a short-term timescale. I'm not going to put him in a project that's going to tie up his money for five years. On the other hand, I've got a guy that wants his money to be at work for five years. I'm not going to give him a six-month flip. It doesn't make any sense. Got to match the goals. And when you hit all of those, like I said, raising money is relatively easy. Relationship, trust, results, compelling opportunity, and matching up the goals. Yep, exactly right. Great stuff. Based on your experience as a real estate investor, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? A good deal badly managed is no deal. So it always comes down to the quality of your team because deals are everywhere. It's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. You've got to be selective. Make sure you don't get indigestion, but make sure you got the right team because that's the only thing that will save you. Ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Today's sponsor, Patch of Land, has got document for you that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper. They show you how a higher interest rate can actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan. And conversely, how a lower interest rate could deliver a higher cost to your fix and flip loan. Needless to say, you got to know this stuff to identify the best loan terms. Go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Get this document, patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. The Corporate Investor Podcast is geared towards successful corporate employees with high income jobs looking to create a second stream of income. You'll hear from successful real estate investors on the show as they describe how they got started investing while working their full-time corporate job. Listen and subscribe at thecorporateinvestor.com. That's thecorporateinvestor.com. Best ever book you've read? The Speed of Trust by Stephen M. R. Covey, Stephen Covey's son. Best ever deal you've done that you have not mentioned? Wow. I was involved in a project where we actually acquired a stadium about an hour outside New York City, a 28-acre parcel of land, 4,200 seats, and we bought it for $250,000. And why was that a best ever deal? It was originally built in 1993 for $11.5 million. So we bought it for the equivalent of about, I don't know, two or three cents on the dollar. Okay. And then? We managed to flip it a number of months later, about 800000 But even the idea that you could buy something for three cents on the dollar was outside the norm of what we considered reasonable. <laughs> At least just buy the dirt for that, right? Well, exactly. We knew we were buying it for less than the breakup value of the asset. So it was a very easy decision. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? Hire the wrong people, not check on what they're doing, and then have them come back and ask for more money. I've made that mistake more than once. And now that you've made the mistake more than once, what safeguard do you have now in your process to mitigate that from happening again? Probably number one is spend a lot of time negotiating the contracts up front, 
and we hire slow and fire fast. Best ever way you'd like to give back? I love to see people grow, so I do a little bit of coaching. This week, I have to answer that one a little bit differently, just witnessing the devastation that's taken place in the Caribbean. I've got a bunch of friends that I'm working with to raise money to rebuild some of the British Virgin Islands because the devastation there has just been unbelievable. So we've already raised a bunch of money and I've got a friend with a manufacturing facility for modular buildings and we're looking at moving some of that capacity to help rebuild some of those communities. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? They can reach out to me directly. My website is victorjm.com. They can email me. I'm victor at victorjm.com or they can contact me through a form on the website. Victor, thank you for talking about your business model, how you structure it with joint venture deals with investors, the fee structure, a typical deal, and even walking us through a case study with that Philly example, how you get up and running by meeting local experts in the area, have those local relationships, some projects you're working on, why you're working on those projects, types of returns, projector returns for them, and then the five ways to bring equity to any worthwhile venture. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much. The Corporate Investor Podcast is geared towards successful corporate employees with high income jobs looking to create a second stream of income. You'll hear from successful real estate investors on the show as they describe how they got started investing while working their full-time corporate job. Listen and subscribe at thecorporateinvestor.com. That's thecorporateinvestor.com.